1838, several decades before he became president, Abraham Lincoln made a speech to the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois. His subject was a weighty one, whether American liberty was likely to survive. Lincoln assured his listeners that the United States was safe from foreign conquest, but warned that it was not guaranteed to survive forever. If destruction be our lot, said Lincoln, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. This series of podcasts on the history of the United States will allow you to consider whether Lincoln was much of a prophet. Was the United States really determiner of its own fate, or was it subject to forces beyond its control? Would it set itself up to live forever, or would it plant the seeds of its own demise? We'll find out on Author and Finisher. Episode 1, Alien Encounters in North America. Lincoln's location and subject matter were made possible by an alien encounter that took place almost 400 years earlier. Neither party in this encounter knew the other existed. They were so widely separated that their meeting brought them into contact with features of the Earth's natural environment that neither side had ever seen before. The meeting of these two widely separated worlds caused reverberations on two continents and eventually around the world. In 1492, North America had a population of about 5 million. The natives lived by a variety of different cultures. The 300,000 people of what is now California grew tobacco, hunted deer, fished, and harvested 600,000 tons of acorns per year, pulverizing many of them into flour. Farther up the Pacific coast, natives fished from wooden canoes and hunted. In the southwest, the Pueblos lived in impressive multi-story homes made of earth and stone and grew corn with irrigation. East of the Mississippi River, natives likewise grew corn and they fished, hunted, and gathered. They built a great city called Cahokia along the Mississippi River in what is now Illinois and Missouri. At its height, it had up to 30,000 people the same number as London at the time. Looming over these people was a terrible danger, however, an alien invasion. The threat was unforeseeable, so these people cannot be blamed for being unready for it, but absolution made them no less vulnerable. Their weapons and body armor were not made of metal. The aliens came not only encrusted in metal, but armed with metal swords, lances, cannons, and handheld firearms. The natives fought individualistically, the aliens worked in teams. The natives often restricted their war-making to taking captives, going after particular individuals, and fighting only at particular times of year. The aliens fought with fewer restraints. They fought to kill, took on whole people groups at once, and were more flexible with the timing of war. These aliens were the Europeans. For them, what was about to happen was like finding life on another planet. During the Middle Ages, the long-distance water travel that would allow such an encounter began to look increasingly appealing and possible. By the late 11th century, the lands along the eastern Mediterranean, the birthplace of Christianity, were in the hands of Muslims. Seeking to deliver and protect what they saw as the Holy Land, Europeans launched a series of crusades over the next two centuries. The crusades ended in military defeat, but they did change Europe by stimulating trade. Crusaders set off a demand for foreign goods when they came home raving about the riches of the East. 
further inflaming Europeans' interest in trading with Asia, was a spate of books about the faraway land based on Europeans' experiences there as traders, diplomats, missionaries, or even captives between the 13th and 15th centuries. They include Marco Polo, whose travels took him to China, India, and Persia between 1271 and 1295 supplying the crusaders and rich Italian merchants, helping them to meet this new demand. By the 13th century, Europeans were importing silk, carpets, spices, porcelain, and furniture from Asia. The growth of merchants and the increasing demand for Eastern goods also stimulated demand for European goods. This higher volume of trade prepared Europeans to support expansion by increasing the size of cities, which led to stronger states in Spain, Portugal, England, and France, and by concentrating wealth that could be invested in colonization. But in the mid-14th century, the trade connection with Asia frayed. When they first got interested in Asian trade goods, Europeans had acquired goods in the Middle East through Turkish middlemen. Then the Mongols overran the lands from Asia all the way to the edge of Europe and held it between the mid-13th and mid-14th century. The coming of the Mongols opened the floodgates of trade with Asia. The Mongols not only allowed Europeans to go by land directly to India and China, but also promoted trade by protecting travelers, providing rest areas along the roads, and reducing tolls and taxes. Then the trade arteries began to constrict. The Mongols fell into decline and lost control of much of their territory beginning in the mid-14th century. The Muslims who succeeded them in power in the Middle East closed the land routes, forcing Europeans to import goods through Egypt, where they were heavily taxed. Trade from Asia slowed to a trickle. If Europeans wanted to keep enjoying Asian luxuries, they needed another way to get there. But they were hemmed in by the vastness, unfamiliarity, and tracklessness of the Atlantic Ocean. In 1291, an Italian expedition set off to find the tip of Africa and never returned. European ships had only square sails. As a result, they could not draw power from the wind unless it was directly behind them. Consequently, sailing ships were often slowed because they had to rely largely on rowers for propulsion. Despite the odds, during the 11th century, the Vikings managed to reach far eastern North America, Baffin Island and Newfoundland, but several qualifications minimized the scale of their achievement. They had crossed only the north part of the Atlantic, one of the ocean's narrowest points, and they had gotten to America by nearby Greenland. They made this crossing during a period when the Earth's climate was temporarily warmer. They soon abandoned their settlement and news of their achievement did not spread. After the Vikings, the seas remained a hard barrier. But between the 13th and 15th centuries, Europeans moved toward overcoming the Atlantic as they made new developments or learned of other people's achievements. They improved their ship design. In the 15th century, the Portuguese introduced caravels, which drew on Greek, Arabic, and Portuguese technology. These ships were easily maneuverable, partly because they featured lateen sails, triangular sails hung at an angle. The best feature of lateen sails was that they allowed ships facing contrary winds to move faster by allowing them to stay closer to their ideal course and allowing them to dispense with rowers. Some 15th century caravels had only lateen sails, 
The trouble with these ships was that lateen sails did not catch tailwinds very well. Others had a more effective design, featuring both lateen and square sails, which allowed them the maximum benefit of a tailwind. Ships that could draw on all sorts of winds had a better chance of making it home from an expedition. In the 1400s, Europeans also began to improve their ships by making them stronger. Older models featured hulls of overlapping boards built around fragile frames. This design could not bear the strain of many sails. One of the largest medieval ships may have managed three masts, but probably had only two. The newer design featured a denser web of framing, atop which the pieces of the hull were set side by side. These stronger ships could carry three or four masts without breaking up. More masts meant more sails and therefore more speed, facilitating longer journeys. This new design contributed to caravels, but it also meant that Europeans could float large ships that also had great mobility. Europeans also improved their navigation equipment. In the 12th century, they learned through the Arabs about the magnetic compass, a Chinese technology. It allowed navigation in cloudy weather and at night. In the 14th century, Europeans improved the compass by setting the north-pointing needle atop a card with 16 or even 32 directions on it. Around the same time, they started to make usable maps. Such maps covered large areas and relied on observations and techniques that allowed them to accurately represent the landscape. Further enhancing their maps was rediscovering the work of Ptolemy, an ancient geographer, likely Greek, who made his home in Egypt. Ptolemy's work on geography offered inspiration and guidance for map makers. He was the first to put latitude and longitude on a map, which allowed all maps to be oriented the same way. And he showed how to make a better two-dimensional map of a sphere like the Earth. In the early 15th century, an Italian brought the manuscript of Ptolemy's work to Europe from Constantinople. In 1406, it was popularized by translating it from Greek, which was little known, into Latin, which was much more familiar. In the following century, inspired by Ptolemy, Europeans began to make their maps even more useful by gridding them with lines of latitude and longitude. In the late 15th century, Europeans adopted two other tools they learned about from the Arabs. One was the quadrant, which allowed them to determine latitude from the North Star. The trouble with the North Star was that it could only be seen in the Northern Hemisphere. Fortunately, Europeans also learned of the astrolabe, originally invented by the Greeks. It allowed them to determine latitude from the Sun. Europeans gained more data necessary to navigation. They published tables showing the location of the sun and stars at all times of year. They learned by studying Ptolemy and looking afresh at other geographers from the past, such as the Byzantines and Arabs who wrote under Ptolemy's name and whose maps and writings were published with Ptolemy's study of geography. And they discovered more about the geography of the great waters far from home. Portuguese, hungry to find a route to trade with West Africa, observed a great deal, including the westerlies, west winds that prevailed at 40 degrees north latitude. In 1487, Bartholomew Diaz cleared the way for a successful eastward voyage to Asia by rounding the southern tip of Africa. But Europeans also suspected there was another water route to Asia. For millennia, they had known that the earth was round, so Asia could theoretically be reached by a westward voyage. 
but few wanted to undertake such a journey because they believed Asia was 10,000 to 12,000 miles away by water at the outer range of even improved ships' ability to provision a voyage. Christopher Columbus reflected on the new geography and came to a different conclusion. Born in Italy in 1451, he sailed as a youth, then became a mapmaker in Portugal, putting him in position to hear the latest geographical news. He likely read Ptolemy, but he also read other geographical writings. One said it was only a very few days west to Asia. Another was Marco Polo, who said East Asia was huge, which implied it was near. Columbus was also influenced by theologians. Their reading of the book of Second Esdras, part of the Old Testament Apocrypha, led them to believe that land covered six-sevenths of the earth. Since a lot of water was already known, the remaining ocean must be small. By the 1480s, Columbus believed Asia was only 2,400 miles west, a cakewalk, considering that Portuguese ships had already ventured 5,000 miles from home. Columbus and his brother Bartholomew sought support for a westward voyage from England, France, and Portugal. None went for the proposal. Portuguese experts said Columbus understated the distance across the ocean, and anyway, there was no need for his voyage after Diaz showed that Africa could be rounded. Columbus also tried Spain. There he found more sympathy. Spain was bound by a 1479 treaty not to try to sail around Africa, so an alternative route to Asia sounded useful. In 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella subsidized Columbus with money and three caravels. Columbus's voyage featured plenty of risk. A westward voyager had already tried to reach Asia. He ventured out five years earlier and never returned. When Columbus set out, much that the Portuguese had learned was still top secret. Columbus was unfamiliar with the cross staff and astrolabe for figuring latitude, and there was no technique for learning one's longitude before the mid-18th century. Instead, he relied on what was called dead reckoning, a method of determining longitude by considering direction, speed, and time of day. This method was not very accurate. Clouds or a strong current could throw it off. Columbus was also wrong about the distance to Asia. It was disastrously farther than he thought, about 10,600 miles. His crew had signed on to go only 2,250 miles west. Brave enough to try something new but disastrously ignorant, Columbus sailed off into an expanse far larger than he knew. Columbus tried to keep up his men's courage by telling them they had put less distance between themselves and home than they really had. Eventually, some of Columbus's men discussed throwing him overboard so they could go home. Columbus warned them about the punishments they would face if they reached home without him, and enticed them with the riches they were sure to find. Five weeks passed. Columbus passed the point where he expected Asia to be. His ships had gone 3,000 miles. The expedition was turning out to be a failure. And then, on October 12, 1492, the trip was redeemed. He reached land. Columbus was sure he had found a new way to Asia. When he arrived home in spring 1493, he announced that he had come to the East Indies, and therefore called the natives Indians. Columbus made three other voyages to the land he had found, and to the end of his days, he never stopped believing he had come to the Far East. 
but other Europeans wondered what Columbus had really found. The new invention of the printing press sped the transmission of the spectacular news across Europe. Asia could be reached by a westward voyage. And it sped the transmission of news about ensuing voyages to the lands west of Europe. Many other Europeans followed up Columbus by making transatlantic voyages of exploration. One was Amerigo Vespucci. Between 1499 and 1502, he made two voyages to explore the lands Columbus had found. In 1502, he published an account claiming that what lay between Asia and Europe was a previously unknown continent. His account and other works about his voyages were in Europe the most popular writings about westward adventuring during the early 16th century. In 1507, a German printing company wrote and published a book calling what is now South America, America, after him. In 1513, Vasco Nunez de Balboa discovered the Pacific Ocean. Between 1519 and 1522, an expedition under Ferdinand Magellan circumnavigated the globe, actually reaching Asia on the way. Finally, in 1538, Gerardus Mercator published a map which referred to the two land masses between Asia and Europe as North America and South America. The truth was clear by the mid-16th century. This was not Asia. This was, for Europeans, the New World. Europeans' ability to reach America improved even more in the three centuries after Columbus's voyage. They learned more about Atlantic geography. They kept improving their technology. The Dutch developed the gaff sail, which was easier to use than the lateen sail. They figured out how to make ships several times as large as the caravel without sacrificing maneuverability. They also figured out how to make ships faster, less expensive to build, and less demanding of sailors' labor, which meant more room for goods. They learned more about navigation, including a means of determining a ship's speed. These developments helped Europeans to trade with and set up colonies and missions in the New World. Arriving in an alien land, from the European perspective, and being invaded by aliens, from the perspective of the Indians, brought together two environments. The Old World, from the Europeans' perspective, of Africa, Asia, and Europe, and the New World. With the exception of the Vikings' brief foray, these worlds had been separated for 10,000 years. Europeans and Indians therefore encountered natural features they had never seen before. Plants, animals, and diseases. This meeting, which historians have called the Columbian Exchange, benefited both continents, but also brought destruction to both. Each side benefited from exchanging plants. Indians in the southwest appreciated the watermelons, peaches, wheat, oats, plums, and apricots introduced by the Spanish, and Europeans fattened on the corn and potatoes they found in America. Traditionally, Europeans had grown oats, wheat, and barley, but the new crops from America provided more calories per acre. Adopting potatoes and corn therefore helped Europe's population to skyrocket. In 1492, it stood at 80 million, but by 1800, it was up to 180 million. The British Isles contained a mere 5 million people in 1492, but by 1800, they contained 16 million, plus another 5 million British in America. 
Contact between the alien worlds introduced each party to new animals. In the Great Plains, the band of flat, largely treeless land running from western Texas and eastern New Mexico to North Dakota and eastern Montana and extending into southern Canada and northern Mexico, the Europeans saw bison, the North American buffalo, for the first time. Bison were perhaps the most majestic creatures on the continent. Males could reach 5 to 6 feet in height, 9 to 10 feet in length, and a weight of 1,600 pounds. Females could reach about three-quarters of that weight. And yet these animals could sprint 40 miles per hour. They found the plains such an ideal habitat that they multiplied to a population of 27 to 30 million. Herds sometimes covered two or three hundred square miles. Indians ate their flesh and turned them into a plethora of goods, including leather, robes, bowstrings, and dining tools. Europeans brought over flocks and herds of animals the Indians had never seen before either. They included sheep, pigs, and cattle. But no European animal changed Indians' lives more than horses. Western Indians benefited tremendously from their arrival. Indians first obtained large numbers of them when the Pueblos rebelled against the Spanish in New Mexico in 1680. Horses began to spread through the Rocky Mountains and across the Great Plains over the next century. By 1760, all the Plains tribes had access to horses. Horses brought great benefit to the natives of the West. Many became more lethal warriors by taking to the field on horseback. Tribes that adopted horses developed the region's strongest military forces. Through trade with Europeans, many mounted Indians had access to guns, but even when limited to lances and bows and arrows, they were strong when they fought on horses. Mounted Indians could speed around the battlefield using their horses as shields. Able to ride without using their hands, they could unleash a rain of arrows at the rate of 20 per minute. Although firearms could shoot farther than bows, Indians with bows could overmatch gun-carrying Europeans because until the mid-19th century, guns took a minute to load each shot. Many Indians changed their hunting practices after the Columbian Exchange. Without horses, they would herd bison into places where they were trapped, then slaughter them. Or they would herd bison off cliffs to their deaths. Hunting on horseback allowed Indians to kill more efficiently. With a horse, a skilled hunter could take 12 bison on a single expedition. All that slaughter required more labor. It took three days to turn a single hide into a robe. Some men adjusted by marrying more wives or acquiring slaves. Mounted Indians changed how they moved. Before adopting horses, they traveled by using dogs. A dog could trot 5 to 10 miles per day. It could carry a 50-pound pack, or it could drag 11 to 13 tent poles, or a 75-pound travelway, a carriage device consisting of a basket suspended between two sticks. The dog also had some severe liabilities. It was easily distracted. Many Plains Indians told the story of a baby boy who had to be raised by supernatural creatures because of a dog's misbehavior. The child had been carried on a travoy drawn by a dog. The dog saw an antelope and went after it. The child went flying and was left behind by mistake. Dogs also competed with humans for food.
Indians saw the horse as analogous to the dog, but far more effective. Comanches referred to the horse as the magic dog, and Lakotas called it the sacred dog. Horses were more focused. Instead of Indian food, they ran on a resource humans could not make use of otherwise, grass. They were faster than dogs, able to make 10 to 15 miles per day, and they could carry heavier loads than dogs, a 200-pound pack or a 300-pound travoy. The ability to haul more goods meant that tribes that relied heavily on horses could accumulate more wealth. Tribes responded a variety of ways to acquiring horses. Some changed their lives only a little. For example, the Mandans in what is now central North Dakota adopted horses for hunting, but otherwise kept living as stationary farmers along the Missouri River. Others made stark changes by becoming nomads, giving up farming, or becoming highly dependent on large herds of horses. Two tribes rode the horse to particular heights of power. One was the Comanches. They farmed and hunted in the Rocky Mountains along what is now the Colorado-Wyoming border. Then, in the late 17th century, they saw the magic dog and began building a massive herd. In the early 1700s, they moved southeast and began to conquer the southern plains with its massive stores of horse fuel. They defeated the Apaches and by the mid-18th century dominated a vast region from New Mexico to Louisiana, northern Mexico to Texas. They held this region for the next century. There they lived as nomads. They maintained themselves by hunting buffalo on horseback and raiding Europeans and Indians. The raiders captured masses of people. Apaches, Spanish, Texans, Mexicans, and New Mexicans. They used some of them as slaves to care for livestock and prepare buffalo hides for trade. Others they integrated into the tribe through marriage and adoption. The plunder also included horses, mules, and food, such as corn. They established a vibrant trade with people from the United States, other Indians, and the French, Spanish, and Mexicans. They offered the bounty of hunting and raiding, horses, meat, buffalo skins, and robes, and people who could be held for ransom. These people could also be used as forced labor or set free out of pity. In exchange, they received tobacco and corn and manufactured goods, including guns, knives, and ammunition. Meanwhile, another mounted Indian power emerged to the north, the Lakotas. They were part of the larger Sioux tribe and have sometimes been referred to as the Western Sioux or Tetons. Until the mid-17th century, their home was the woods and prairies of Minnesota, and they lived by hunting beaver and bison, gathering and farming. In these years, they were weak. They lacked guns as well as axes and knives of iron, goods available through trade with Europeans. Between the mid-17th and mid-18th centuries, they made a great transformation. They dropped farming and became less reliant on gathering. They began living as nomads. To have mobile homes, they moved into teepees, conical shelters made of buffalo hide and supported by poles. Teepees made good winter shelter because there were no empty upper corners to heat, and a fire in the center provided warmth. One anthropologist has said that living in them was like dwelling in a chimney. Nomadism allowed them to lean more heavily on hunting beaver and bison. Eventually, bison hunting entirely displaced beaver. In the early 18th century, they began living full-time in the grasslands of western Minnesota and the northern Great Plains, where they faced fewer enemies and had more access to beaver and bison. 
At the same time, they began acquiring horses by trading with other Indians. By the 1750s, they started to fight on horseback. By the 1830s, they hunted and traveled exclusively on horseback. To survive as nomads, they lived on a strict schedule. They called Maine, May, the moon when the ponies shed because horses lost their heavy winter coats. In summer, they congregated because grass was plentiful. Bison killed in summer were the least hairy, making them well-suited for leather goods. In the fall, as the grass thinned, they dispersed. Men hunted buffalo for winter food. Women gathered nuts and wild plants. Winter was the most dangerous time of year. They called December the moon of frost in the teepee. January the tree-popping moon because of the effect of the cold on trees. And February the sore-eyes moon because of the pain of snow blindness. They spent these hard months along the stream bottoms. There they found water, grass, the shelter of the walls of the valley, and cottonwood bark that they could feed to their horses. Winter was the time when Lakotas hunted for the bison that they intended to make into robes because their fur was thickest. As nomads, the Lakotas lived largely by trading the animals they hunted. In the late 17th century, they became more fearsome warriors by opening trade with the French, who gave them iron weapons, meaning axes and knives, and guns which could fire farther than bows. The Lakotas also developed other trade partners, British, Americans, people of mixed white Indian ancestry called Métis, and other Indians. In addition to guns, they acquired manufactured goods such as knives and blankets, plants that provided carbohydrates, and horses. By the late 18th century, they were the first Indian tribe to have large stocks of both horses and firearms. They used warfare to capture buffalo hunting ground and to raid. By the first half of the 18th century, their new firepower allowed them to begin using raids as part of their way of making a living. They plundered corn, horses, and people whom they killed, enslaved, or incorporated into their tribes by marriage. They conquered territory. Warfare helped them to live west of the woods. In the first half of the 18th century, they conquered much of the prairie from central Minnesota through the eastern Dakotas. Around 1800, they conquered the central Dakotas along the Missouri River and started to hunt and raid west of the river. In the 1820s, they took the Black Hills. The region's thick forests offered tent poles and winter shelter. Its abundant plant life made them a good hunting ground and a bountiful source of carbohydrates. In the mid-19th century, they conquered much of the northern west and became the most powerful people in the northern plains. In the 1870s, their territory reached its maximum size. The western Dakotas, eastern Montana, Wyoming, northern Nebraska, and south-central Canada. Alien encounters in North America also brought people into the presence of infectious diseases they had never faced before. Meeting new diseases is dangerous for humans because when a whole people meets a disease for the first time, everyone is simultaneously at risk because no one's body knows how to fight the unfamiliar disease. Europeans and the Africans who were part of this first wave of invaders from the old world were well prepared for the disease exchange. They, along with Asians, had immunity to a wide array of diseases. Keeping large numbers of domesticated animals had exposed them to all sorts of pestilence. Then, because all lived on the same landmass, invading armies and other population flows ensured that almost every people had tasted the same noxious cocktail. When European men ventured into an unknown land, 
they began having sex with Indian women. Thus they met syphilis. When these men had sex with other women back in Europe, they sowed the disease back home. Syphilis afflicted Europe with a new source of pain and death. Fortunately for Europeans, though, it did not kill at a fast enough rate to derail their hurtling population growth. By contrast, the diseases Indians met in their visitors from afar were devastating. Indians were unready for the onslaught of the pathogens. The original inhabitants of North America walked across the Bering Strait until as recently as 8,000 years before the birth of Christ. Before then, the presence of an ice age that locked up much of the Earth's water in ice lowered the seas and made this journey possible. Many people who carried diseases died along the way, reducing the amount of disease that made its way into the Americas. Indians also had less opportunity to catch diseases because they kept fewer types of domesticated animals. Furthermore, they had fewer genetic differences among them than did Europeans, Africans, and Asians, increasing the chances that disease would spread. And then they had gone thousands of years without contact with people on other continents, other than the Vikings' brief foray, which was short and in a remote area. As a result, their immune systems did not benefit from fresh disease infusions. Indians were therefore vulnerable to what historians have called virgin soil epidemics. These are epidemics in which a disease is introduced to a whole people group for the first time at once. Virgin soil populations catch these diseases at a wide range of ages. That is dangerous because many diseases are more harmful to adults than children if the body is unfamiliar with them. And because no one has developed immunity to these diseases, there is no safe population that can care for the rest. Adding to Indians' peril was that they often faced these diseases in stressful situations. Multiple new diseases struck at once. They were at war with the European newcomers, or facing repression from them, or they were enduring a natural crisis. Europeans introduced measles, cholera, typhoid, and influenza, but most lethal of all was smallpox. Smallpox is well configured to lay waste to humans. In cases 300 years and more ago, symptoms began with pain in the head and back, fever, fatigue, vomiting, and anxiety. On the fourth day of symptoms, victims developed sores in the mouth, nose, and throat. On day five, the course of the disease diverged. Some victims developed sores inside the body. They started to bleed through the eyes, gums, and orifices such as the nose. Most of these were close to death. For others, the suffering continued as sores covered the outside of the body. They appeared most densely on the parts that were easiest to see and handle. The face, hands, feet, back, forearms, and neck. These sores stank and sometimes became infected. They formed scabs after about ten days. The scabs made movement painful. Sometimes the sole of the foot came off. Others were scarred for life or even blinded. Those who did not die quickly still often died after more suffering. Deaths were most likely for infants under age 1, adults over 45, and pregnant women. Children between the ages of 5 and 14 were the least likely to die. In Europe, the death rate among children was 3 to 10 percent. Those who survived at least had the consolation that they were immune for life. Making this terrible disease more deadly was that smallpox spreads easily. 
Fortunately, for the first few days of symptoms, the victim was not contagious. But then the victim was contagious for almost two weeks. Then, for an additional five days, the scabs of smallpox sores carried the disease. Smallpox was dangerous even for Europeans. An outbreak in London in the mid-17th century killed 7% of those who caught it. Another, in Boston in 1792, killed 30% of those who caught it. And another, in Scotland in 1787, killed a third of those who caught it. But, in addition to their long history with smallpox, Europeans had some tools to face it. In the early 18th century, they learned about inoculation from Asians and Africans. Those who underwent inoculation gained immunity by receiving a mild case of the disease through a cut in the skin. In a 1721 outbreak in Boston, the death rate among those who caught the disease naturally was 15%, while only 2% of those who received the inoculation died. Then, in 1796, English physician Edward Jenner introduced a much safer preventative, a vaccine that worked by giving recipients cowpox. Indians lacked these tools. Their smallpox case fatality rate outstripped that of Europeans. Indian bands facing smallpox for the first time typically lost about half their members, and there were worse outbreaks in certain cases. In winter 1633 to 1634, a smallpox epidemic killed 90% of the Indians living in the Connecticut River Valley. An 1837 to 1838 pandemic killed huge numbers in the northern Great Plains. Half of the Arakaras died, and the Mandan population fell from as many as 2,000 to 100. European diseases eroded the power of American Indians. Within the first century after an Indian tribe made contact with Europeans, it usually lost 90% of its members. Mainly because of disease, the Indian population in North America fell by more than 90% by 1900. By that time, the United States was down to 250,000 Indians. Looking back on this, historian Daniel Hedrick wrote, the epidemics that afflicted the peoples of the Americas were the worst catastrophe that has ever befallen the human race. This catastrophe was a macabre sort of luck for Europeans. Disease was not a barrier for European expansion in America. By contrast, malaria and other diseases native to or particularly virulent in Africa delayed European expansion there. Not until the late 19th century, once they had developed treatments and preventatives, could Europeans expand into Africa. Meanwhile, disease made it easier for Europeans to conquer Indians. Disease transmitted from Europeans began killing the Indians of what is now the southeastern and midwestern United States by 1539, long before permanent European settlement in the region. Likewise, between 1616 and 1619, disease carried by European fur traders and fishermen killed 90% of the Indians living along the New England coast. When permanent European settlers arrived in the region in 1620, they found empty cleared farmland. Disease so dramatically depleted the Indian population that Europeans sometimes saw the disaster as a sign that God meant to give the land to them. The Columbian Exchange brought benefits to both Europeans and Indians, but in the end it benefited Europeans most. In 1492, the native peoples of North and South America were 7% of the world's population. Three centuries later, 
they were 1% of its population. Over those same three centuries, Europe's share of the world population rose from 11 to 20%.